welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. stand in the honor of the reading of God's word this morning as we move through what has become known as the Christ hymn of Colossians in our study of the epistle to the Colossians. I'm going to read once again Colossians 1 verses 15 to 20 as we complete this marvelous sweep of scripture that exalts Christ so greatly. So with me will you hear the word of God. Speaking of Christ, Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's majestic word. May its eternal impact be written on our hearts in a deep way today. Father, come and minister among your people. Oh, Holy Spirit, come over, preacher and passage. Open your word. Bring your truth to your people, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As you're being seated, our kids can be dismissed for Kids Church. That's kindergarten through fifth, and they can head on out. There's always someone in our inner foyer from our uh, teaching staff to let you know where the kids are headed. Well, let me ask you a question, Christian. Are you satisfied with what you know about Jesus? Are you satisfied with what you know about Jesus? The right answer is no. I'm thrilled with what I know, but I want to know more. But you would be amazed how often, if people were truly honest about where they are in their Christian lives, many Christians would say, yeah, I'm pretty satisfied. Now, part of that's because we've created a unique Christian experience Uh, in our history as a country. Because of the religious freedoms we have and and the sweep of certain kinds of teaching in our history, we've created a lot of what I would call decisional religion. We've mechanized how you come to Christ and we've, we've, we've packaged it in such a way that when people make decisions, they believe that that's pretty much the essence of what it means to know Jesus. They've decided to trust Christ through a certain conversation or 
or service, and it's decisional religion. And so they're pretty settled, they think, in their relationship with Christ. And yet that differs from what the Bible teaches. The, the Bible teaches that when you meet Christ, it's not so much a, a decisional religion moment, it's a discovery of life moment. And life grows, and life expands, and life fills more and more of who you are it is an ongoing relationship that the Bible teaches we have when we meet the living Christ. But regardless of, of the, the nature of how you may have been taught what it means to meet Christ, so many Christians I know are fairly satisfied to stay at the lower rung of the ladder of what it means to know him biblically. And when you ask them what they know about Jesus, as I said last week, many of them will say, well, I know Jesus is my Savior. Is that crucial? Of course it is. But it seems that many in our Western culture who call themselves Christians have banked on what they've decided about Jesus, but left most of the other dimensions of growing in Jesus behind. He's banked on but left behind until you need him. Many people have banked on Jesus but left him behind until certain things happen in their life. There, there are a lot of people that have an image of Christ or a certain kind of relationship with Christ that you could even characterize with a term. There are many that I meet that, that have what I would call a cruciform Jesus. They know a cruciform Jesus in the sense that it's almost as though they know the Jesus that's still on the silver cross that's around their neck. They're focused on what Jesus did on that cross, and they believe he lived, they believed he died for them, they believe he rose, and they believe he gained heaven for them. But it was like a transaction that they're fortunate enough to have had the good sense to take a part in. And so that's all settled. And so they have a faith in a cruciform Jesus, almost Jesus still on the cross, but who did it all, lived, died, rose, and gained heaven, and they have eternal security but in the dynamic of their everyday moment-to-moment -moment life, you're not seeing Jesus sought in their hearts or revealed in their walk. Others have a relationship with what I would call the interventional Jesus. This is a person who is banked on what Jesus did but left him behind until a crisis comes or a failure emerges in her life or suddenly something occurs that's beyond her ability to handle in her own way of life with her own strength. And so they look to God and they, they come back into a fervent relationship for a short period of time with an interventional Jesus whom they look to to intervene in their crisis. Is it wrong to look to Jesus to intervene in a crisis? Of course not. I'd rather you look to him than you didn't, but there's so much more to him. He's more than the cruciform Jesus who lived, died, rose, and gained everything for you. He's more than the interventional Jesus whom you can call on and who will respond to you in crisis and failure. Make no mistake, but there's so much more that he wants in your life, and there's so much more that he is. I meet other believers who have a relationship with what I would call the inspirational Jesus. And these are the believers, bless their hearts, who, who chase Christian experiences, who feel that they have a relationship with Jesus only when there's an experience, emotional or mystical, that goes along with it. 
through the latest book they might find or read that touches some chord that hasn't been touched in their spiritual life or talks about some amazing miracles or some fantastic new hidden principle that yet again will put their life back together. Jesus is more than a fill-in-the-blank principle. He is God Almighty. He is not there to inspire you. He is there to be the Lord of your life. So stop chasing concerts that fill up your emotional bucket again or heading to a different service with a different platform speaker who has yet another famous message that fills your bucket again. You're chasing after the inspirational Jesus. And quite frankly, he is a manufactured experience most of the time. He is far more than the cruciform Jesus, far more than an interventional Jesus, far more than the inspirational Jesus. I find others that simply have a relationship that they banked on him, but they left him behind until they need something relevant to answer a problem in their lives. And these are those who go to the instructional Jesus, who view Jesus and particularly the word of God as as a, a set of instructions or relevant ideas so that problems in their life can be put in perspective, challenges in their life can be risen to in a greater way, or some practical problem in their life can get a solution that's Christian. And so from time to time, I see them coming back from the Jesus they banked on to find an instructional Jesus. But it's as if For these believers, the Jesus they banked on occasionally comes back into their experience, but he's always like this one-dimensional person drawn either as cruciform, interventional, inspirational, or instructional. But what I do see not there is a living, walking relationship with Christ as sovereign God, because you see, he is not a fill-in-the-blank Jesus. The whole point of this passage is that he is magnificent beyond imagination. He is the ultimate God. And he is certainly not a one-dimensional person. But so many Christians see him in minimal terms. And the Colossians were being pressed by their culture to diminish who Jesus was. It's the tactic of the enemy of our souls in every culture to diminish, to take all the color out of who Jesus is and what he can do for you. They were seeing Jesus as flat white. When I told you last week, this isn't white at all. It's a combination of three of the most vibrant colors you can imagine in the color spectrum. So the whole point that Paul is after in this section is to draw people out of their one-dimensional understandings of Jesus, to take them past flat white to the full color spectrum of who Jesus is. And so he brings this great, passage about the greatness of Christ, the incomparable Christ. It's been called by theologians the Christ hymn of Colossians. Theologian Wayne House wrote this, the Christ hymn of Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is a powerful statement about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ's supremacy is seen at every turn. So if you read this section and you're looking for it and into it for things that you can use for yourself, or you're looking for into it for self-understanding, which is how so many people read the Bible, you are totally approaching it incorrectly. This is a text that you read when you want a greater vision of Christ. And so that's how I'm teaching it to you. I'm seeking to add color to the flat white understanding you may have lived with about Jesus. I'm trying to put colors into the spectrum of your understanding of this Savior.
And you'll need that because the more you know about him, the greater your trust will be in him. And believe me, believer, deeper challenges are coming for you and for me. The more you know him, the more you'll trust him. So that's why the nature of this passage is so important. Now, I've basically taught it along the line of, dis- of the discovery that I made when I studied it, there are, that there are, in my mind, five dimensions to who Jesus is that are amplified and magnified by Paul in the passage. There are five colors, if you will, to add to the full spectrum of how you see Jesus. We've seen two already. The first dimension was that Jesus is the perfect portrait of the invisible God. Verse 15, he is the image or a portrait of the invisible God. God being invisible and unknowable, God brought a portrait of himself into play in human experience. Jesus Christ, fully God, became fully man. And as John 1.18 says, he illustrated the invisible God. What a marvelous gift. That affected how we believe what God says, because when God came to the planet, God spoke. And God's words need to be heeded with the authority in the authority that they have. So that's the first thing we learned. Second thing we learned last time is that Jesus is also the second color, if you will, to the spectrum, the eternal creator and sustainer of the universe. This is verses 16 uh, through 17. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, the physical planet, the, the soulish dimension of human beings and the spirit world, angels, demons, Satan himself, all created Through him and for him, he's before all things. He's eternal. He existed when things were begun. He was the creator of it all. And Genesis 1, along with the Father and the Spirit, and he holds all things together right now as the cosmic curator of creation. And he holds it all together until one day he'll allow it to all dissolve and he'll create a new heavens and a new earth. This is the supreme Christ. That, of course, affected who we trust. If you're facing needs in your life, material, physical, health needs, relational needs, financial needs, if you're worried about the tottering structures in our whole society and you're afraid of tomorrow's needs, the one who holds it all together, the one who owns it all and controls it all can be trusted for it all. What an assurance we had. Today we'll go through the three trailing dimensions that finish the five. Gaze with me now into verse 18 and we get to dimension three. It says in verse 18, and so he's continuing this listing. He's continuing this exclamation of praise that explains these five great dimensions of who Jesus is and how he compares to no other. And he goes on, he is the head of the body, the church. How do I package this, if you will, as I do so that you can understand the principle? Here's how I put it into words. The third dimension of the greatness of Christ is this. Jesus is the leader and sustainer of the church. Jesus is the leader and sustainer of the church. Not just the church universal, the church all over the planet, the church part of which is now in heaven today worshiping him, but this church, the church, I could almost say Jesus is the leader and sustainer of his churches churches like this one 
gathered around the gospel, founded on the word of God, holding to the sacraments and living in obedience to him. We are are led and sustained by him. So he uses the fray or a metaphor, the head of the church. What's a metaphor? Well, a metaphor is a figure of speech. It's used descriptively. It's where a word is used that describes something else based on its likeness. It's an image that amplifies how you describe something, a metaphor, a word that is describing something else through likeness. An example might be that when you, when you look at somebody who really isn't getting how big an issue is, you say, they're just putting a Band-Aid on a problem. Band-Aid is the metaphorical usage, and you know exactly what he means, don't you? And so often the Bible uses human metaphors to describe some of the unapproachable greatness of Christ. And so Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit to use this word picture, and he says Jesus is is to the church like the head is to the human body. There's the metaphor. He takes something they knew, the head, the human body, physical function, and he says in the same way that your head uh, affects your physical body and relates to it, Jesus relates to and affects that invisible body called the church, your church. Another way of looking at this is basically Paul is saying Jesus is to every church what the head is to the physical body. That's the point. Now, if you take that metaphor out and and, and examine it and meditate on it for a minute, you'll see that it really describes two things. I think that this means, number one, that Jesus directs or leads his church, this church, any church that's his, because That's what the brain does to the body. Think about it. I'm sure you'll understand it. The, The head contains the control center of the physical body. Everything the body does is directed by the the nervous system and the, the, the directive place of the brain. In fact, if your body begins to get bad signals from the brain, bad things can happen. This is why your physical experience is affected if you have a brain injury or if there is some uh, decline in the, in the functionality of, of this electronic box that directs every other part of the body. So as the brain directs the body, Paul says Jesus literally directs his churches. He affects his church. You know, the, the, the physical body is, is highly dependent on the brain, and I'm sure you know this, but let me give you a little detail. There are two dimensions to the brain um, that I've been reading about that dramatically affect the body if something's wrong with that little dimension of the brain. Toward the base of the brain is, is a portion called the cerebellum, the cerebellum. And that affects all kinds of dimensions of balance and movement. And if something happens to affect the cerebellum, everything from here on down goes into chaos. It doesn't work right. Interestingly enough, alcohol consumption goes right to the cerebellum. And it does some weird stuff. Here's what one uh, person I read this week, a researcher, said. Excessive alcohol exposure results in cerebellar ataxia. That sounds so bad I didn't even look it up. 
but I know I don't want it. Excessive alcohol exposure also results in the cerebellum being affected so that there are alterations in hand movements, impaired postural stability and balance, and slower attenuated foot tapping. I have no idea what the last is. I just saw my mother do it all the time. So she must have had some cerebellum problems. She always sat there tapping her feet. looking. But he says, if alcohol affects the cerebellum, the small part at the bottom of the brain, there there are alterations in hand movements, impaired postural stability and balance. This is why all those clips from live PD that you watch on YouTube are so entertaining. When they pull the guy over and they bring him to the back of the police vehicle and they said, we're just going to go through a few simple tests to make sure you're safe to drive. And the first test is they say, okay, go ahead and and take your finger and, and put it to your nose. And the guy's so confident, but so inebriated, he says, of course, Oscar, I can do that. Watch. Bing. <laughs> See? Then it goes to this and that, and the other thing, you know, you know what I'm saying? Why is, is he suddenly unable to function? The cerebellum has been altered by exposure to alcohol. So if something happens to the brain, then the body suffers. There's another gland called the uh, part called the pituitary gland. It's very small. It's in the, the bottom part of the brain, I believe. And, but if that doesn't function wor- properly, it affects things like your energy, your mood, your reproductive organs, your vision, your growth. It's called the master gland because it tells the other glands how to release hormones. And something goes wrong with that. You have to be on hormone therapy your life. If you're going through that, I, I, I feel for you. The point is that that the head develops and affects all the functions of the body. And it's imperative that the body get healthy signals from the head. So here's the application to the church. The question is, if that's true, then the church can only get good direction and be healthy as it follows and responds to the head. Now, the head is always healthy in this case. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's perfect. So how does a church get healthy signals? By staying in touch with the signal giver and not going offline in any way. Now, how do you do that? Well, you do it as a church by being connected to the Word. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a healthy cerebellum. (laughs) Does that sound really weird? I thought about that. I tried to illustrate it. But the point is, the church needs to stay connected to the healthy, directive head, which is Jesus Christ. But churches today are so anxious to connect to directors that they think are more relevant or more to their taste. And so they go offline from Christ and from the word, and they get into being directed by all kinds of other entities that they think make more sense in the human model. Some churches I know are directed by critics inside the church. That's not the way to do it. Other churches I know are directed by the culture outside the church. That's not the way to get your leading in direction. And many other churches I know are simply directed by other churches on every side of the church. We don't go to any human factor for the direction of God's church. We stay in line with the words of our head. So, 
Jesus is the leader and sustainer of the church. First dimension is he directs or leads his churches through his truth. Here's the second. I think this also, this metaphor teaches that Jesus sustains or gives life to his churches. Uh, quite frankly, that's the th- second thing that, that the head does. And essentially, uh, well, let me just be as blunt, and I hope I'm not as crass, but with no head, you're dead. The body without a head is a dead body. Notwithstanding that weird Star Trek episode from 1970 that nobody my age can ever forget about Captain Pike, the guy with the head but no body. Remember that guy in the box? Some of you. Thank you. Thanks for the lifeline. I appreciate that back there too. Thank you. Star Trek aside, no head, you're dead. He is the source of life. The, the electronical impulses of the brain move life through the system. And so if you're separated from him, there can be, bottom line is there can be no life in a church that's not truly connected to Jesus. But many churches are no longer connected to Jesus because they left the head by cutting off their allegiance to his word and they started identifying their church in every other way but with the truth. This is why Jesus said, I think, to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3, you have a reputation that you're alive, but you are dead. But they were a church. They had a sign out front. They had different times where people could come in. They did a concert or two every once in a while. They were a church. Oh, you have a reputation that you're alive. People say, well, a lot of exciting things happening there. Jesus says, I know who you really are, and you're dead. You're not with me anymore. You're not responding to my truth. And there are very few people in your church, Church of Sardis, that actually are born again. How do you create a dead church? You let a bunch of spiritually dead people join it. Doesn't that make sense? You let the gospel go away as a standard. You call it more of a, a gathering and, a, and, a, and a, an organization than you do a body of truly redeemed people. I think I've made my point. A church without his life doesn't have the fruit of the Spirit either. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, long-suffering, all the beauty of who Jesus is. If, if you're connected to Christ and that church is responding and walking with Christ, he gives life to his church. He sustains it. How does a church get continuous life? If you get continuous direction through the Word of God, you get continuous life partly through the worship of God. That's why we begin every service with worship. That's why your hearts are joined in praise to the wonderful master that we adore and love because it puts you personally in touch with the fact that he is your life. So this affects, of course, who we follow as a church. Let us not follow critics, culture, or other churches. Let us not follow trends. Let us not follow human direction. Let us follow the word of God and let us live under the gospel and never compromise it. Here's the next dimension. Go on in your Bibles. Now look at the next phrase in verse 18. He says, he's not only the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now he shifts and he goes to a fourth dimension a fourth color in the spectrum, so to speak. Firstborn from the dead. The Greek literally says, firstborn out of the dead. This, of course, relates to resurrection. Now, firstborn can be confusing. 
it, it, it may look to you in time like he was the very first to ever be resurrected. Technically, in biblical terms, that may not be true. It doesn't mean he was the first raised from the dead because he wasn't. There were many people raised from the dead before Christ arrived in the Old Testament. There was the, the, the widow's child who was raised from the dead by the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 17 as an example. And then as Christ lived in his earthly ministry, there were people that he raised from the dead, most notably Lazarus in the grave three days. You remember, or four days, you remember the story. So is this about first in time or is it something else? I think it's two things. I think first born from the dead could mean that Christ is the first part of the new creation, the first one raised in the age of the new creation. What's that? Well, Paul says here, he calls him the beginning. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he began something that had never been seen in universal history. There had been people who were raised from the dead in the Old Testament, people raised in Christ's ministry, Lazarus raised, but all of those had that wonderful experience in common, but they also had something else coming. They also then died again, didn't they? They were all raised from the dead, but they were going to die again, and they all did die again. Jesus was the very first who was raised from the dead in the sense of the new creation that meant when he was raised, he would not die again. He's the first resurrection of the new creation. He will never die again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want you to go there in your Bibles and look at this. It's a marvelous set of scriptures about the resurrection. talks about this, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, as in Adam all die, including, by the way, Lazarus, who died again. So also all who are in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, his return, those who belong to Christ. I think that last part refers to the coming of Christ for his church, yet future. What's all this mean? There is a dimension in which all those that are in Christ will rise one day and will never die again, will be everlasting. That's the new creation resurrection. That's coming for you and me. And Christ, when he rose, was what the Bible called the first fruits of that. First fruits, an interesting term, came from the agricultural culture of the time. And when uh, a, a farmer had his crops uh, planted and, and irrigated, and then the first uh, fruit began to bear on the trees or, or in the fields, he would go out and, and take some of those first fruits, the very first appearances of that fruit, and when he had that in his hands, he would be able to see what the coming crop in that season would probably look like. Was it thin or is it thick? Was it pale or was it full of color? Were the fruit, fruits small and weak or large? And, and so first fruits gave you a, a vision or an understanding of what was to come. Jesus Christ is the first fruits in the sense that he rose to never die. And he also rose in a glorious body. That's the greatness of this passage. He is the firstborn of the dead in the sense that he's the first part of the new creation. And that new creation is a great promise for you and for me. 1 Corinthians 15 goes on. This is beautiful. He talks about the fact that the body you've got now, 
even if you're in great shape, even if you're, you know, an elliptical champion, even if you're just a perfect diet, or even if you're in phenomenal condition, your body is going to deteriorate and die. It is still a frail thing. It is nothing to be compared with the future body you're going to have if you're a believer. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he goes on farther. Look at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? In other words, what do you look like after you're raised from the dead? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Your body, no matter how well you've kept it, is going to get sick one day and decline. It's a frail thing, isn't it? It's like a kernel of wheat. There's not a lot to it. In essence, it's like the husk around the kernel. There's not much to that at all, is there? That's the best that we are. We're we're living in a broken world, a, a cursed world. We have cursed bodies broken by the fall, and they're terminal. And so as you die, even let's say you die in the, in the peak of health, you get hit by a bus, still a frail body. It doesn't compare, Paul says, to what is coming. But God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. In other words, something better from God is coming. Go down to verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. He's saying, if you think these bodies are great, you have no idea how how great those bodies are going to be. There's no comparison. We're a husk of wheat here, but we're beyond imagining there. Verse 42, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Our physical bodies here are diable. <laughs> they, they're frail, they decay, and they die. They're terminal. But what is raised in heaven is imperishable. We will be everlasting in physical reality. You're going to have a physical, real body when you get to heaven and you receive your resurrection body that will go on forever, never die, new creation. That's the resurrection Jesus was a first fruits of. Verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. What is that? Sinful body. Full of sin. Under the curse. It is raised in glory. Without sin. Without any of the dimensions of the fall. It is so in a natural body with limits. It is raised a spiritual body. I have no idea what that really fully means. But it's a body that's equipped to live into eternity in a spiritual world called heaven. That's all I can say. Here it's natural, limited physically, has its weaknesses, has its limitations. There it is raised a spiritual body with no limitations And in verse 48, as was the man of dust, that's what we are now, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, who's that? That's the Jesus we've been talking about. So also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam's flawed physical body, Adam's flawed physical heritage, broken by sin, limited by weakness, headed for physical death. So we shall also, when we're raised, bear the image of the man of heaven. Who is the man of heaven? The Lord Jesus. And so when the Bible says he's the firstborn from out of the dead, I think part of it means he is, he is the, the first example of and the leader 
of the only resurrection that really counts. Aren't you glad you're part of that if you're a Christian? You think about it. I mean, Christ's resurrection body, we just got a glimpse of it, but that thing's a Cadillac, man. (laughs) Wow. You're driving a busted-down two-door Toyota beater from, I don't know. You're going to be a Cadillac. Oh, well, I'll just leave it there and let you imagine. Just imagine you out on the the floor looking at the greatest new car ever made. It's going to be beyond that. But there's another dimension. Firstborn also means supreme in place. It means exalted above all others. And I do think that there's a dimension of that here because he says, not only is he the beginning of something, that's the, 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 the resurrection of those who will never die, but at the end it says that in everything he might be preeminent. And that's another way in which firstborn is used. Firstborn meant above all others, unique in character, high and above all others. And in that sense, that's true about Jesus too, about the resurrection. Why? Because he made the resurrection possible. He came to the cross. He bought you out of hell. And when he rose from the dead, dead, he defeated death and hell and took the keys with him into heaven. And when we get there, we're going to worship him forever and ever, world without end. Amen. Because he is worthy of all praise, because he defeated death and created resurrection. That's why Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. So in that sense, Dr. Barnes, the biblical commentator, is right when he says Jesus is at the head of those who rise from their graves. It means he had the preeminence among them all. He was the most illustrious of those who will be raised from the dead. He is above all, supreme, incomparable, surpassing, towering, transcendent, ultimate, unequalable, unmatchable, unsurpassable. This is the Lord. Well. This affects, of course, what we hope for as Christians. If you, know, if, the, if you know that all of this is true about the Lord Jesus, then you have everything to hope for on the other side of death. All a Christian has to trouble, be troubled about concerning death is the physical pain of the passing <laughs> and some of the emotional struggle that goes with it. But the other side is all glory. We have much to hope for. And I'm so glad that Jesus said my place there is totally guaranteed. I I never need to doubt whether I'm going to be there if I know him. Jesus said, Father, of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. He won't lose you if you belong to him. You may stumble in your Christian walk. You may go through times of doubt or maybe even long stretches of difficulty. But you're his. And he takes his to heaven. I love what John 17, 24 said in the same time when Jesus was praying to the Father. He said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I know I'm going to heaven because Jesus said he wants me there. How about you? Amen. Here's the last as we close. The final dimension, the final color to the spectrum of Jesus is this. He is full of everything God is because he's 
God. This is verse 19 of Colossians 1. Look at it, he says, For in him, in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Wow. Don't make the mistake of misunderstanding the deity of Christ. He is fully God. Now, like I told you last week, the, the, the goal of the enemy of our souls is to minimize who people think Jesus is and who Christians think Jesus really is. And the goal of false teachers who are sent by the enemy is to infiltrate churches and to bring a diminished teaching about Jesus or draw people away from churches into cults or sects or other places where they are taught falsehood and they are enveloped by it. The Colossians had that same problem. There were false teachers circulating around their church and coming into their church who were teaching a heresy about Jesus, and that was that he was not God. He was an emanation. What in the world is an emanation? It's a spiritual being that you can't really see or understand who has been sent from some God who is so distant that you can never fully know him, but he sends out these emanations, these spirit beings to give you a little taste of what he's like. And he sends out thousands, if not millions of them over all kinds of years of time. And Jesus was just another one of those emanations from God, but he wasn't enough to save you. You had to know more from these false teachers about their new insights into this unknowable God. Well, Paul confronts this, and he actually uses a teaching word from those false teachers. It's the word fullness. The Greek is, Greek is pleroma, and it meant just full to the brim. And the, the, the false teachers were saying that we have the fullness of knowledge you need to go to find this ultimately unknowable God. Jesus has some. He can give you a little taste of this God, but there's more that you need to know from us. So Paul says, no, I don't care what clown comes up to you with what revelation or what vision or what angel they can name that says they have new knowledge that you need more of. If you have Jesus, verse 19, you have all the pleroma of God. There is nothing more to learn about God that isn't seen in Jesus Christ. There's nothing more to discover about God that isn't discovered in Jesus Christ. There's nothing more to experience about God that isn't experienced in Jesus Christ. And there's nothing being held back from you about God. Because all the fullness, the pleroma, is not in what they teach. It's in who he is. I hope you see that. Jesus is not one of the lesser gods of the fullness. He is the fullness. They were teaching these Gnostics that Jesus was kind of a halfway house to God. By knowing him, you got a little bit closer. But he was just a link in the chain. And there are other better, stronger links on ahead. You just have to keep coming to our studies and our teaching to find out a little bit more. And maybe you'll get there as we give it to you like breadcrumbs on some path. That happens every day when a believer goes into a meeting of a cult. Every day. But Paul counters this and he says, no, all the pleroma continually, the Greek says, dwells in Jesus Christ. You got him, you need nothing else. Jesus Christ is not a taste of God. He is the totality of God because he is God. You've got to get that believer. Because the majority of people that get wrapped up in God-denying but Christ-related cults in America today, the majority of them were part of an evangelical church. 
The enemy comes and takes believers who have such a limited knowledge of Christ and sweeps them into this deception like was happening at Colossae. Jesus Christ is not a taste of the divine. He is the totality of the divine. Put it this way, Jesus wasn't just a sip of the divine or a slurp of the supernatural. He is the whole glass full of God. That's what Paul is saying. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and the language in the Greek says, continuously world without end. So this is the full spectrum, Jesus. Well, I must close. You see, we go through all kinds of issues today with people telling us that they'll accept Jesus and they'll let us talk about Jesus, but only Jesus on their small, diminished terms. Whether they're a member of one of the the great religions of the world, You know, there are five great religions of the world. Christianity is one of them, but there are four others. All four believe in Jesus, all four others, and all four others diminish him. Islam, the teaching of Islam was that Jesus existed and taught, and he was a prophet. Muhammad described him as as the final prophet from God, and he's in a list of prophets, but he denies that Jesus is God or that he died on the cross. So Islam will allow you to talk about Christ, but only on its diminished terms. He's not God. He's not the fullness of God. Judaism is the second of the five uh, after Christianity and Islam. It's Judaism. Does Judaism accept that Jesus lived? Oh, yes. The Talmud, its ancient documents, record the existence and the teaching ministry of Jesus and talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. But they say he was not God. He was not the Savior, and he didn't rise from the dead. Someone stole the body, Matthew 28. They still teach that today. Hinduism is the next of the great world uh, world religions of the top five. And Hinduism believes in Jesus. It believes that Jesus is a God. Of course it does because there are multiplied thousands and tens of thousands of gods in the Hindu belief system. They worship many gods and goddesses. And some are eager to include Jesus in their list of deities. However, they do not see Jesus as God or the fullness of God or the only way to God. You see, as a Christian today who believes in what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, you're a wash in a world that will let you talk about Jesus, but only on its terms. And they're all lesser than the reality. Finally, Buddhism. That's the last of the top five. Do Buddhists believe in Jesus? Oh, yes. They'll tell you Jesus was a highly enlightened man and a very wise teacher, but not God. And so here we are as believers in Christ. What do we need to have to walk in this world that diminishes Jesus? You need to have the full spectrum of who he is in your mind and in your heart. And when you see him like that, you'll understand that when people who are believers see the full spectrum Jesus in fullness. They see someone who's taken the breath away from true believing hearts for 2,000 years. He's so wonderful. To the point where we can only write hymns about him to put our wonder into words. One of the best was written by Charles Wesley, 1739. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity. This is our Lord Jesus.